Let's pray together. Father, we want to see your son more clearly, and so I pray that today as we open your word and preach about men who followed a star hundreds of miles to see your son, that this text would be like a star that shines brightly on him, that we might behold his beauty, that like the wise men, our hearts would be filled exceedingly with great joy, and in turn, it would banish every sin that would dare rival him, all the distractions that pull our attention away from you, the, the attention that you deserve, I pray that they would fall away and be seen as nothing. I pray that you are glorified and that we are satisfied in you, that we love you, that you become our chief delight because we see your son. Pray that you would do that by your spirit. That's a work that cannot be done by man. That is a work reserved for an infinitely powerful God, and that's who you are. You're the God who changes hearts. I pray that you would send your spirit to change our hearts through your word. This would not simply be another exercise during the week, but rather a time to gather as your redeemed people, hear from you through your word, and be changed by you, that we might be conformed more into the image of your Son. That's what we want, fathers, to look more like him as we behold him and love him more. So I pray that in his holy name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to that passage that Dave just read, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. We uh, started the book of Matthew a couple weeks ago. We started with everyone's favorite place to start a new book, a nice long genealogy. And then last week, Jeff talked a little bit about the birth of Jesus. And this week, we're moving on to the very famous wise men passage that is after Christmas. Oh, man, there's going to be a lot of nativity scenes ruined after this sermon, okay? You need to put the wise men other side of the living room. They're not there yet, okay? We'll, we'll see that in a second. But you can go ahead and look down at verse 1. We will jump right in to seeing this scene. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born, uh-oh, already, okay? He's already been born, okay, I'll, I'll, we'll move on. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here in the first two verses, we're going to get all the characters from this scene, from this passage that we're going to look at today. So the first one that we see is Herod the king. Herod the king, the one who is the current king of the Jews. Uh, I went to a Christian school growing up, and when uh, people wanted to pick on me in middle school, they would call me Herod, right, the bad guy of the New Testament. So I'm just saying that to let you know, I also had a difficult upbringing, okay? <laughs> Private school can be rough. You know, people can hurt with their words. Herod, I would, I'd still shake when I hear this name. Uh, Herod, the current king of the Jews. Who is this guy? Who is King Herod? We saw when we looked at the genealogy, one of the things that Matthew is showing is that Jesus is actually the rightful king. He's the one that's come from the line of David. God had promised David, you, you will always have a son on the throne. One day a son will come from you who will reign forever and ever and ever. And he traces the line down to Joseph. Jesus, his son, is the rightful king. So who is this guy that's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? So if you know your Old Testament... After Israel is taken into captivity by Babylon, they are forever under the reign of some sort of giant superpower. So it's Babylon for a while. It's where we see the book of Daniel, and then we actually see in the book of Daniel, Babylon loses to Persia, 
I was thinking about doing audience participation, but it's just all mumbling. Uh, Persia, you know, Leonidas shows up. The Greeks, they, they, they wipe out Persia. So Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, there's a, there's a small hundred years of freedom for the Jews in there when Judas Maccabeus rebels against the Greeks. That's where we get Hanukkah. But then a little startup called Rome shows up and goes ahead and conquers the whole world and puts them back under captivity. And as a superpower reigns, they all have kind of different strategies. Rome's is, how do we keep the peace? We're going to put a puppet king here and keep these you know, Jews from rebelling. We're not going to let them have their own king. We're going to put somebody we can trust who will be loyal to us and who will reign as king, but who's really under the Roman empire, under Rome's rule. So that is Herod. He is not uh, Jewish. He's an Idumean. He's actually a descendant of Esau. So you have Jacob and Esau. Herod's actually a descendant from Esau. So he is kind of put there. He's a foreign king ruling over Israel as kind of a puppet king. He was known as two, two main things. He was known as a master builder. So the temple, the, the New Testament temple is incredibly glorious, huge. I mean, you will see people marveling at it all throughout Matthew. And Herod is the one who built it. We had Solomon build a huge temple that was destroyed by Babylon. Then when they were, the, the, the Judea returns from Exile, they build a little dinky one. People had seen that Solomon's cry whenever it's done, which is kind of disheartening. And then Herod rebuilds an incredible temple. Uh, when Claudia and I were in Israel a couple of years ago, almost every city or every region you go to, there's the ruins from something huge Herod has built. So he rebuilt the temple, built palaces all over the place. He was known as this master builder, and he was also known as a crazy tyrant. Uh, He murdered his wife, he murdered several of his sons and many other relatives, anyone who he deemed to be a political threat. That's King Herod, also known as Herod the Great. So that's the first guy that we see. The second group is the wise men, the magi, the travelers from the east. So who are the wise men? The Greek word, yeah, is just magi. We don't really know what it is other than we know it's either some sort of pagan priest Maybe some dream interpreters, you know, the story of Joseph or the story of Daniel when Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar have a dream that disturbs them. What's the first thing they do? They summon their dream interpreters who don't do a very good job. And then Joseph or Daniel shows up and gives the right interpretation. Maybe that, that kind of crew, they're perhaps experts in the stars, astrologers, maybe kings, although I think that's actually the least likely that's what we think because of the famous We Three Kings song. It might be kings. They're certainly high class, certainly in the royal courts. Maybe they're kings. That might be actually the least likely. How many of them? Christmas is, about to, uh, is just about to crumble. We don't know. All we know is wise men from the east. That is all the information that we get. We think there's three because there's three gifts. And again, the song, We Three Kings, uh, traveling, bearing gifts. We travel so far. So we don't actually know Church history is all over the place. Some people think two, some people think 12. Uh, Could just be, you know, anywhere in there. We can go with three just for fun because we're used to it. Uh, And when, so when are they coming? We know it is after Jesus' birth because Matthew says that. Uh, Jesus and Mary are in a house. They're not around the manger, surrounded by animals. And then we'll see later, this is a big spoiler alert, uh, in a couple weeks when Herod wants to try and kill Jesus, he sees that the wise men don't bring him back a report of where they are. He kills everyone two and under. Okay, and Herod's very aware of what time Jesus was to be born. So maybe this is about two years or maybe a little bit less after the manger scene. So that's the second group, these, these wise men from the east. That's why 
the translators give that kind of generic term. Could be some sort of uh, priest in the royal courts, maybe kings, but high-class guys. And then the third character we see is the true king of the Jews. Right? They go to Herod and say, where is he born, the king of Jews? Who is that? That's Jesus. We're going to see the third character in this scene. So what we're going to see quite simply in this passage is the response of two groups, King Herod and the wise men, two sets of kings, if you will, even though I just said they weren't kings, the response of two sets of kings to the king of kings. All three of those characters, Herod, wise men, Jesus, we're going to see two responses to the coming of the true king of the Jews. That will be what this story is about. So let's look at that first response. Let's first examine King Herod. Look at verse 1 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse three, and when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod sitting on his throne, life's great, just killed his wife, killed his kids that are, I guess, threatening his power. He's powerful and now he hears of this other rival king that has apparently come and he's not just another rival king, he's the king of his land, the king of the Jews. And what is his reaction? He's troubled. His gut begins to twist. He goes through this inner turmoil and he is terrified. Apparently this is the opposite reaction of the wise men who when they became aware of this coming king of the Jews, go for many miles, why? To worship him. We see the exact opposite reaction from Herod. He's not stirred with worship like the wise men. Rather, he is stirred with terror. And in this moment, upon hearing of this king that has come, as fear floods into his heart, he has already decided what his response to this king will be. So the first thing he does, verse 4, is he begins to investigate, launches an investigation. Look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's the prophecy that the religious leaders bring to him. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So Herod hears, freaks out, launches an investigation and calls two groups to him. The first group is the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests, who we'll later see, is often called the Sadducees. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the people in charge of the temple, in charge of this great temple that Herod has built. And then the scribes, these are the professional Bible interpreters, the people who know the Bible best. Notice they instantly know the answer to his question. This is the first group, and he wants to know who, and he wants to know where. Who is this king? Where is he? And what the scribes do is open up Micah 5, verse 2, and that's what's quoted there. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod says, where's Jesus going to be born? Where's the Christ, the Messiah, the one that's promised going to be born? They crack open the Bible and they say, six miles away, Bethlehem. 
That's exactly where he's going to be born. So he knows who it is. Notice, it's the Christ. It's not just another king. It's the king, the king that all of Israel would have known. There is coming a Messiah one day who will reign forever, the son of David. He says, where's the Christ? He knows who it is, and now he knows where it is, just down the road from Jerusalem, six miles away in Bethlehem. So that's the first group to find out who and where. Jesus, Bethlehem, the Christ, the Messiah, the coming one in Bethlehem. And the second group, he summons the wise men and he wants to know when, when. So he knows who and where. And then he asks the wise men, what time did the star appear? At what point did the star appear? You, you, you're here, you came hundreds and hundreds of miles because you saw a star somehow knew that the king of the Jews is coming. When did that happen? Right, he's, he's gathering in the investigation. So he hears of the Christ King that he's here. He's terrified. He finds out who, where, and when. And then verse eight, he begins his plot. He begins his plot. And when he sent them, the wise men, to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Go and find him. Why? Because I want to worship him too. That's the, the plot. And if you know the story, you know that's the exact opposite of his motivations. If you look at, if, if you take out that part where you, we hear that he's terrified, if you take that out, it looks like Herod is doing exactly what they've requested. Wise men show up and say, where is he? Where, where's the coming king? And Herod launches an investigation, finds out where, tells them where, and says, he's in Bethlehem, go find him. And then let me know, I want to get in on the worship. But again, if you know the story, that is the opposite of his intentions. He is not making a happy request here to the wise men because he wants to get in on the worship that they're going to go participate. Rather, this is a deceptive murder plot. He doesn't want to join in on the worship of Jesus. He wants to eliminate the possibility of anyone worshiping Jesus. He doesn't want to worship. He wants to eliminate the possibility of worship. This is a sinister murder plot he's launching out as he hears that there's this rival king. Now, here's where we need to examine ourselves a little bit. It is very easy, I would think, to dismiss Herod as just some sort of tyrant, which he is. But it's easy to just put him in the unlike me, Hitler, Putin category. He's just upset. There's another uh, political threat he needs to eliminate. But if you actually examine Herod's heart here, the fear, the turmoil that's flooding in as, as he hears a rival king might be arriving. His actions aren't abnormal, they're human. The very essence of sin is wanting to dethrone God and step in his place. That is exactly what Herod is doing. That is exactly what you and I do when we sin. Think back to the Garden of Eden with me, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, perfect unity. They are his, God's representatives to, to fill the earth and subdue it so that all might look upon their flourishing and say, you represent God, right? They live in perfect joy, fellowship with him, and God gives them one command. You can eat of any tree except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Any tree except this one. And there's this, there's this thought we have sometimes of does God just want to keep them dumb? Does he just want them to be robots? If they know good and evil, they might figure out that he's, you know, maybe doesn't have their best intentions in mind. But rather what he's doing in giving them this command 
is giving them the opportunity to trust him, giving them the opportunity to do what's best for them, which is to totally rely on him. And when the temptation comes, let's examine this. This is what happens when the temptation comes to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 5, notice this. God wants them to trust him. That's why he gives this command. Wants them to love him by obeying him, trust that he's got their best intentions on his mind. And here's what the serpent says. Why did he give you this command? For God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of this tree, you're not going to die like God said. When you eat of it, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at this temptation. What's happening here? Doubt God's goodness. Doubt God's trustworthiness. Doubt the the joy of life in him and decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. Don't let him do it. Don't trust him to do it the right way. You decide what is good and what is evil. Don't let him decide what is good and what is evil. In other words, eliminate God and step in his place. It's exactly what Herod is doing. The essence of sin is trying to dethrone God and step in his place that you might rule, that you might rule your own life and not have to submit to another. To say it another way, everyone in this room who has ever sinned, so everyone in this room has done, has had the motivation that Herod has as he's beginning this sinister murder plot. The idea that God isn't trustworthy, that his laws are generally to make your life boring, to make you a stodgy religious person, but at least you get heaven at the end of the day, that he doesn't have your ultimate joy at heart, that he's not good. I rule my own life, not him, the essence of sin, dethroning him and stepping in his place. And so here we see the first reaction from Herod to the coming of the king of kings. There's only two. Here we see the first one, kill him, remove him, dethrone him, Do whatever it takes to get him out of my life so that I don't have to bow the knee and I can continue to reign in his place. That's the first reaction. Kill him. Kill him. So second reaction, we see the wise men. That's the first. I want to rule. I don't want him to rule. That's something that flows out of every human heart. That's the essence of sin, dethroning God, that we might sit in his place on the throne of our own hearts So we must kill Jesus to remove him from the situation. The second reaction we see from the wise men. Look back at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has to be born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. Again, so Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot of detail of who these guys are. They're, again, probably experts in astrologists, astrologers, whichever of those is right, that's what they are. They're good at it, okay? And so they see, somehow they're just looking at the sky, they see a star, somehow that triggers, hey, the king of the Jews is coming, the the promised one, and they travel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to worship him. How do they know that a star rising uh, is pointing to the king of the Jews? We don't really know. Most scholars think that where they're coming from is actually Babylon, the the area where uh, the Jews would have been taken into captivity. And the assumption is over time, maybe the, the Babylonians became familiar with the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, and they would have known 
this prophecy, Numbers 24, 17. So if you're being faithful to your Bible reading plans, you've just cruise through numbers. Uh, And there's this scene as Israel are traveling, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're about to go next to the Jordan. They'll hear one more sermon from Moses in Deuteronomy and then they'll invade in Joshua and they're going and God is delivering them, delivering their uh, enemies into their hands and all the surrounding regions are starting to freak out and a foreign king hires this kind of, uh, what's a male version of a witch? Witch? Whatever you guys just mumbled, that. Balaam, should have just said his name, hires Balaam to curse Israel. He's this famous curser. Uh, and Balaam goes up on the mountain and tries to, every time he tries to curse Israel, God turns it into a blessing. And so he ends up blessing Israel. And this is one of the things that comes out of his mouth as he's attempting to curse Israel, this blessing. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheph. So everyone in Jesus' day would have taken this to be a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And so maybe, most likely, the wise men are from Babylon area, familiar with this prophecy and the star triggers their idea of he's here, he's coming, the scepter is coming. There's the star that was promised and they follow it. So again, if they're from Babylon, that would have been maybe an 800 mile journey. So 20 miles a day, 200 or uh, uh, two-ish months. Uh, And all this way to worship him. We see that. This motivation to worship this king, though they are foreign, they're Gentiles. And then skip down to verse nine. This is after Herod's plot. The wise men pick it up right here. Verse nine, after listening to the king, King Herod They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place, uh, over the place where the child was. And when the star, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they're following the star. By the way, could be a star, could be an angel. We don't really know. When you see those documentaries of the guys who were like, it was this comet, and therefore we can do the math of dating everything, and it's like their life's work. That stuff's cool, and not to diminish their life's work, but it's probably wrong. Uh, So (laughs) it somehow leads to a specific house which, I mean, again, I'm not an astrologer or astrologist, whichever one of those was right, but I look up and I'm like, okay, I I guess this one's over my, I mean, I don't get it. Maybe it was an angel, who knows? Uh, So they see it and look at their reaction. Look how Matthew describes their reaction. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. There's almost no, uh, there's no way Matthew could emphasize more what is exploding in their hearts as they see that they have found the one that they have been traveling to worship. A verb, an adverb, a noun, and an adjective. They rejoice exceedingly with joy that was great, with great joy. That's their reaction as they've been following the light of the star to the light of the world. Their hearts explode with joy as they find, as John describes in John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to all that has come into the world. So they see that they found him. They go in. They see the boy with his mother. 
Jesus with Mary and they fall down at his feet and they worship him and they open their treasures, their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. They lay their treasures at the feet of the ultimate treasure. They found him. They've been traveling. They find him. They rejoice. They fall down. They worship and they lay their treasures at his feet. What is their reaction? I said you have two options. The first one we saw in Herod, kill him. The second option, crown him, adore him, worship him. Notice Herod compared to these wise men. Both groups are trying to find this king. Both groups are trying to find Jesus. One wants to find him to protect his own glory, Herod. The other group wants to find him to lay down their glory that he might be glorified. Both searching for him, absolute opposite motivation. One wants to kill, one wants to crown him. From the perspective of the world, the wise men are the losers. Right? They're, they're the ones doing the traveling, which is hard. And if you're powerful, you probably don't go see others. Others come to see you. From the perspective of the world, they're the ones that are weak. They're losing wealth. They're losing their status. They're giving away their treasures, and they're bowing at another king's feet. They're the ones that are lowly and pathetic. And Herod, on the other hand, is in his palace, high and mighty, commanding people what to do. He's got the power. He's got the prestige. Notice the irony. Herod is being eaten alive from the inside out. He's losing sleep. He's writhing as he's terrified. He's being eaten alive by his own fear and by his own pride in his high and mighty palace. These wise men are experiencing more joy than they ever thought possible as they lay their gifts at his feet, as they bow at this king. The high and mighty is in the corner of his room crying while those who are making the long journey, losing all of their status, are experiencing the joy they were made for. Don't miss that. So the wise men find him, and they lay everything at his feet, and they're experienced with this great joy. They're filled with great joy. Again, that's the irony of sin. Notice Herod. The irony of sin is that the pleasure that it promises is really poison, right? It brings only death. If you eat of this tree, you won't die. You'll be like God. That's the promise. Adam and Eve take a bite, and in an instant, everything good they've ever known vanishes. The promise was a poison. It brings only death. There's a show that's really weird. I only ever use as examples shows and movies that I don't recommend. It's called My Strange Addiction. I don't know if it's on anymore. I saw this like 15 years ago. Uh, don't Google it. It's very uncomfortable. This just popped in my head while I was writing this sermon, something, you know, I think a YouTube clip I saw 12 years ago. But there was a strange addiction that I watched uh, where, uh, you know, it's like people eat glass and sleep with their uh, hair dryer in their bed, and they're like burning their legs, weird stuff. But there was one lady uh, who her addiction was sniffing gas. So she spent a lot of money uh, filling up gas tanks and had water bottles filled with gas all over the house that she had to sniff every 20 minutes. And so as you would imagine, her health wasn't great and her hair was falling out and she was losing her uh, memory and had, had sticky notes all over the house because, I mean, she was just slowly dying by this addiction, this thing that she thought would give her happiness is slowly poisoning her in a very obvious way. But the worst part wasn't that, you know, this, this pleasure was really a poison. The worst part of the clip that I was watching was she's, as she's doing this, she's surrounded by her family 
She had kids that are watching her do this, slowly die in front of them, and they're begging her, please stop. You don't remember my name half the time because your memory is fading because you're so addicted to this. So it wasn't just that her addiction was slowly bringing death. It's what it was robbing her from. The joy with a loving family that she's being robbed of because of this addiction. And that is the irony of, he- of King Herod here. Not only is this desire to keep power slowly poisoning him. He's filled with fear. He's in the corner of his room in a ball. But look what it is robbing him of. The wise men are basking in the beams of King Jesus. Herod is in the corner of his room, writhing over the stress of possibly being dethroned, not knowing that if he would but bow the knee, he would be filled with more joy than he ever thought imaginable. He would find the fulfillment of every longing that he's ever had. Again, the irony of sin, not only does it bring death, it robs you of life. We see that in Herod. But look at the wise men. They choose the second option. Kill him, crown him. They crown him. They bow the knee. They're filled with joy. They don't have this false understanding that being under the rule of this king makes you uh, bored. And he's only, you know, he's, he's abstract and he's up there and he's dictating rules because he's a tyrant. And I guess we have to follow it or else he's going to send us to hell. They have no such false idea. They believe, it appears, Jesus' later words in John 15 when he says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, there's the law. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Stop there. There's your option. Commandments given, abide in them or don't. And here's your option right now. Is he trustworthy? What's his motivation? Does he just want power and to keep you down here like Adam and Eve believed? Or his true motivation. Look at verse 11. These things, this is Jesus speaking, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What is the motivation of this king for those who would bow the knee to him? He wants to put his joy in your heart that your joy may be full. In other words, there's nothing better for you there's no, there's no greater happiness for you, no greater joy for you than to bow the knee to this king. The wise men see it, they experience it, they experience the joy of knowing him. And in so doing, they show us kind of something that's at the core of Christianity that we actually see from John the Baptist, this idea of he must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. Herod, on the other hand, is saying he must be eliminated so that I can increase the wise men, on the other hand, would probably tell us something. If, if you knew, when you see the glory of this king, all it makes you want to do is rid yourself of any possible vain glory that would ever rival him. When you see this true king, all you want is for him to be made more glorious, for other people to not look at you anymore and to gaze at him because you've tasted the joy and seen the goodness of this God. Robert Murray McChain, the Scottish pastor, I've quoted him about every week now. I'm reading through his memoirs, so sorry. My illustrations come from like my quiet time, so you'll, you'll see a lot of McChain over these next few weeks. He says this, Ah, oh, there is nothing like a calm look into the eternal world to teach us the emptiness of human praise the sinfulness of self-seeking and vain glory and to teach us the preciousness of Christ who is called the tried stone. 
So you see here the two options, kill him or crown him. If you kill him, what's on the other side of those? Herod's also showing us that. Kill him, on the other side of that choice is nothing but misery because you can't actually kill him. Spoiler alert, we'll find that out later. Uh, You can't actually dethrone him. You can't actually be God. See the garden, see Adam and Eve. The other side of that choice is nothing but misery. Surrender to him, crown him, and you experience nothing but joy. So those are the two groups. Those are the two choices. There's actually one more group. I know I lied. I said there was just two groups. There's one more group that we've actually seen in this passage of people who hear of Jesus and have a a particular response. Did you see who it was? The religious leaders. There's one group that hears of the Messiah and they have a response. Herod called them in, open the Bible. Where's he going to be? He's in Bethlehem. Who are they? These are the people steeped in religion, busy with religious activity. They're in charge of the temple. They study the scriptures as their job. Their whole life is concerned with religious work. They're very careful to make sure their righteousness exceeds all others. They even add a few extra laws to God's law to make sure they've covered all their bases. And did you see their reaction? Herod summons them. Where is the Christ? Six miles that way. And they leave. What's their reaction? Indifference. Seemingly no reaction. They seem like they couldn't care less. He's six miles that way. Where is he going to be born? Herod says, okay, I'm concerned. I want to go kill him. Their reaction is he's that way. And I guess I'll go back to attending the temple, right? They should be saying, he's here. The one, the scriptures we study every day is six miles away and they should sprint like the disciples hearing of the empty tomb, but they simply just go back to their work as if nothing has changed about their life. And what they're showing us is the danger of religious comfortability. I don't know if that's a word, but I made it up if it is or if it isn't. Religious comfortability, the danger of being so familiar with religious activity that you actually go numb, grow numb to the one that all the activity is meant to point to. These religious leaders are happy with their Bible studies, they're happy with their church attendance, they're happy with their moralism, and they don't blink when the Savior that all of that is for is six miles away. The wise men have traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to worship him, yet the Bible experts don't lift a finger to go six miles to find him. They're very happy with their lives. They're happy with their religious activity. They wouldn't want anybody to come and ruin it. And what they are showing us is the danger. Beware the danger of having just enough churchiness, just enough conservativeness, just enough moralistic activity that you can say, Christianity, check. Now, what about my dreams and my hopes and me? There is a danger of becoming so familiar that you miss the one that everything is meant to point to. Christianity is not a contract. It's not a, you join this group, you follow these laws, you get your name written in the book of life by praying this prayer, and then all of a sudden, you're good, right? No, it is life surrender, death to life. You must be born again. If anyone will come after me, pick up his cross, this instrument of death, and follow me. You must bow at his feet. You must lay all things down so that he alone is worshiped. Don't confuse those two as you live in an area where you pass 97 churches to get to this one. And there's a Holy Spirit statue down the street in the Adriatica, right? There is a danger 
of being so familiar with Christianity that you become numb to the one everything is meant to point to. Don't forget that the devil appears as an angel of light. He appears to be saying sweet things to Eve as the fruit gets closer to her mouth. He appears to promise good things, appears as an angel of light. Sin doesn't want you losing sleep over the state of your own soul. Sin wants you happy on your way to hell. Sin wants you numb to the one that everything points to. For you to say, look at my works, I'm good. I'm certainly better than those people over there. Why would I really need to worry? I I, I mean, if God's not going to let me in, he's not going to let anybody else in because I'm better than those people. And in that process, you'll miss him. You'll be numb to the one that's six miles away. Augustine has this great prayer knowing this about sin. Augustine knows one of the things sin wants to do is make itself invisible. And he prays this, cleanse me from my secret faults, O Lord, for I fear to deceive myself, lest my sin should make me think that I am not sinful. Beware the danger of letting religion, and by that I mean religious activity, make you numb to the one that it is all about. There is no such thing as casually submitting to this king. You have two options, crown him or kill him. And you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought you just said there's two options, but they clearly have chosen a third option. They're indifferent to him. You will see as we go through Matthew, who is gonna be the ones that fight with Jesus the most, the religious leaders. And they will see that indifference isn't an option, and which one will they have to choose? They will kill him. They will realize what we think of just pretending he's not here or doing enough religious activity to where we don't have to bow the knee to him is not actually an option. We have to pick one of the two, and they will choose the first to kill him. So we have these two options, kill him like Herod or crown him and worship him. In the same way that they've responded, so we have to respond when Jesus shows up. We only have those two options. We don't have the option of him just being a good teacher. We don't have the option of him just being your buddy. We don't have the option of, like we talked about a few weeks ago, molding him into whoever we want him to be. He's the one that gets me out of hell, or he's all love and no justice, or all justice and no mercy, or he's a butler I kind of summon when I want a promotion, or want my kids to get into a good college, or he's a political pawn I use for my agenda. We don't have the option of him serving us. He is who he is. Before Abraham was, I He is right now overseeing this service. See who he is and crown him or kill him. Bow the knee or reject him, but you have to choose between those two. And at least Herod, I mean, honestly, at least he's honest with himself. At least Herod is saying, look, I want this guy gone. I mean, he's lying to the wise men, but once they leave, he kills every baby under two to eliminate this savior. At least he's honest with himself. We need to be honest with ourselves. If Jesus is just convenient, if he's an extra thing you've added to the life you've already lived, and if he would take it away, nothing would be, you know, changed about your life except maybe your eternity. We have not been honest with ourselves. At least be honest with yourself. That's one of the hard things. We talk about this in our evangelism teaching. The hard thing about this area is everyone thinks they're Christian. And so when you're evangelizing, you have to kind of convince people they're not a Christian before you tell them the gospel because the understanding of, yeah, I'm good. I I do these good works and I go to church on Sunday, things like that. Be honest with yourself if that's you. Be like Herod. But let me warn you, 
if you do choose the Herod response, one day, whether you like it or not, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this king is Lord. You will bow either as a conquered enemy or as a worshiping friend, but one day every knee will bow. So let me implore you, choose the response of the wise men. Choose the response of the wise men to crown him. He will not deny you all the fun stuff in your life and make your life boring and stodgy and religious and moralistic, but at least you get heaven at the end of the day. You will be trading in your gas can. You'll be trading in the poison for ultimate joy. Again, Robert McChain says this, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again, and you will never come to the bottom of these depths. Or to quote Jesus, come to me if if you're thirsty and you will have, I'll give you water. You'll never be thirsty again. Living water will flow from your heart for those who come to me. So let us all come and bow the knee to this king. Let your pride melt away as we worship this true king. Let your heart be filled like the wise men with exceedingly great joy as we fall at his feet. He will not rule you as a tyrant. He will not grind you into the ground while he uses you to accomplish his evil agenda. He is the only king who promises life, who promises rest for your souls, who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's the only king who promises a peace that surpasses all understanding, a comfort that you've never felt in the midst of horrible suffering. He's the only king who promises a love that is unfathomable. What does Paul pray for his people in Ephesus? I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. He's the only king who offers a love that is unfathomable. Come to him and you will know the infinite joy of being ruled by this king. Crown him or kill him. Make those choice or choose between those two and please choose to crown him. No matter what you choose one day, every knee will bow. At the end of the day, you will figure out, like Adam and Eve, there's no such thing as dethroning him. There's no such thing as dethroning him. He will reign forever. The question is, will you bow as a conquered enemy or as a loving friend, as a child of the living God? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We want to love and know your son. I pray that we would. I pray that we would not be Distracted, I pray as, as we even look at the religious leaders, there's a sense in which uh, the enemy's just waiting, no matter wh- which way we turn. If we're, he's waiting to condemn, perhaps there are people who are believers who love and trust your son, but are now feeling condemned. And maybe I'm not a Christian after that harsh word about the religious leader, uh, leaders. I pray that you would comfort their hearts, that they would see there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I pray for those who have been deceived, who have grown numb to him, who think they can have the activity without the Lord, or think they can use Jesus for their own ends and not fully bow the knee to him. I pray that you would convict their heart. And not just where they would bow, but they would bow in joy like the wise men, that they would know him, that they would worship him, they would praise him, and that they would taste and see that the Lord is good, that they would dive and dive again and realize they never reach your depths, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would do that in our hearts as we continue to look at you through your word, through Matthew. I pray that you would 
Help us, Lord. Send your spirit to transform us and conform us into Christ's image. We pray in his name. Amen.